Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and as soon as you get there, uh, I want to read that first verse, all of us together. Um, If you're using a digital Bible, I'm using the NASB translation, as I often do. So, Romans chapter 8, I hope I said Romans chapter 8, not Hebrews, I'm I'm in two places in my mind, multiple places in my mind, trust me. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, here's what it says, and if, if if you know it, please read it with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One more time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Last week, I shared with you um, uh, what, I, what I presented to be the two bookends or Paul's two bookends to the gospel life, to the Christian life. And that is on one side, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is an immense uh, level of peace that comes when you know that, that you are not being looked at in a condemning fashion. You're not even being looked at out of the side of God's eye. He's not, he's not keeping one eye on you at all times, you know, believing that you're just, you're just that person still. He set you free. He's, he's given you life. He, is, uh, he has joined you to himself. And so there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That offers us great peace. The second side of this, um, the second bookend of the gospel life is that we are being called to future glorification. So on this side, what we have is we have peace uh, with no condemnation. And on the other side, the other bookend, we have the vision of God. The vision of God is that he is glorifying his people. He is molding us and he is shaping us. And there is one day, and we're going to talk about this in in greater detail next week, there is one day when uh, we will experience the restoration of all things, the redemption of our our bodies is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And so there, there's a lot to it. There's a, there's a beautiful picture there that's painted. But I, I want to I share with you a couple of things today, and I hope that, I hope that they'll all uh, fit in your, in your mind well, because um, in my mind, there is so much going on that it's, it's hard to put it all concisely or neatly together. So let me, let me start here. Um, the, the peaceful side of this, that there is no condemnation, is something that I want to unpack a little bit more this morning. I want to, I want to spend some time on that, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come back in just a second. But I want to hit real quick on this vision piece, okay? The vision of the glorification of God's people. There is a movement in the church today, and it's been going on for, for 30 or 40 years now, um, where pastors are, are all about their vision, for the church. They're all about their vision for the church. And just so you can kind of hear my heart out and hear hear where I where I stand on this. I do understand organizational vision. I do understand that that maybe God has 
uh, uniquely positioned Pierce Point Community Church in a place in Claremont County for a particular task. I can, I can understand how God might look at us and say, you know what my big vision is, you know what my goals are, um, but I have made you, I have custom made you for a particular uh, expression. I understand organizational vision. The problem that I have, though, is that far too often uh, pastors make all of the church life about their vision and not anything about God's vision. And this, what this leads to is it leads to churches that, that have um, great mission statements and great vision ideas and all of these programs and all of these things that they do. The problem, though, is they never seem to get to the real stuff. They never seem to, to stay focused on the fact that God wants a, a holy people. Did you know that? God wants a holy people. And, and so in, in the desire of God to want a holy people, he's actually established a vision for us. He's established a vision for us. It includes things like church discipline. It includes things like brothers and sisters sharpening each other because iron sharpens iron. It includes things like uh, regular study and reading of his word because God's word is powerful. Amen? It's powerful. And it can shape and it can mold us. It's, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So it can cut off the, the rough edges. It, it can, it can uh, refine us into the pure thing that we're supposed to be. And so when we talk about vision, and next week we're going to talk about God's vision in a greater way, this future glorification. When we talk about vision, it is very important that we stay grounded, that whatever we claim our vision is, it must serve the creator of the universe. It can't serve Pierce Point Community Church's agenda. It can't serve modern church movements. It can't serve a pastor's ego. It can't serve all of those. It can't serve any of those things, as a matter of fact. It means that no matter how popular it is to do other things, we have a job that God has set us out to do, and we've got to stay the course. Amen? So when we talk about that, it's really important. What you'll, you'll hear me talk about vision. You'll hear me even use uh, language like the modern church uses, where it's a snapshot of a desired future. But I want you to understand, God already gave us a snapshot of a desired future. God already sent us the Polaroid. It's written in the pages of his word, okay? Because God only has a Polaroid camera, by the way. But anyway, so he's, he's got to upgrade his cell phone or something. But anyway, so the, the point is, is that God, God has given us that vision. So it's really important for us to understand that, okay? So we'll talk about that next week. This week, I want to go deeper into this idea of no condemnation. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this, uh, this message, this, uh, this truth brings us peace, doesn't it? How many of you would say by a show of hands, I have tremendous peace knowing there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus? How many of you would say that? There is no other peace, by, mind you. There's, there's no other offer to give you peace in your life except for that in Christ Jesus, you have been made alive and he does not condemn you. This idea of peace is just interesting because, um, because having that peace motivates us, I believe, to approach God in a right way. When you have peace in a relationship with somebody, when you have a peace in your relationship with God, you know what that leads to? It leads to what the Bible says. It leads to us uh, boldly approaching the throne of grace. 
boldly approaching the throne of grace. It does not, trust me, it never leads to us brashly approaching the throne of grace. I, I grow weary in my heart when I, hear, when I hear Christians say things like, you know, uh, God, do this in my life. It's like, zip it, right? Like, I, this is not boldness. This is brashness. You run to God, and you run to God under this pretense. He's a loving father who is not condemning you, and he wants to give you good things. He wants to give you good things. That's not, a, that's not advocating for prosperity theology. It's simply that God wants what's best for his children. The, the Bible tells us that if sinners can give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us His Spirit, give us the greatest gift of all, okay? So it's really important for us to understand God wants to give us good gifts. And the peace that we have in not having condemnation enables us to run boldly to our Father and say, Abba, Dad, Father, we need you. We need you. We know that you're there for us. We know that we can trust you. And so it's really important that we have that particular kind of peace. In my mind, I've got this, uh, I've got this picture that continues to, to come up all the time. And that is, and many of you will know what this is like. Um, uh, I've got this picture of going to see a friend that you've not seen for many, many, many years, okay? You've, you've not been around the friend for a long time, but you go to see the friend and you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to see the friend, and as soon as you make eye contact, as soon as you embrace that friend, you, here's what you feel. As though not even one moment has passed. How many of you have ever felt that? Right? It's an amazing thing. You're like, that's a real friend right there. However, how many of you have ever felt like you've had a relationship in the past and, and, and there was an opportunity to reconvene with some of those people or maybe a, a group of people? But even the thought of you going to see them caused that pit in your stomach to just kind of turn whatever it is, and you started going, uh-oh, how, how's this going to turn out? How, how many of you have ever felt that? How many of you felt that coming to church today? No, don't answer that question. Anyway, so, but the idea is that you, we felt both of these, right? We've had those relationships where we're like, man, a day hasn't even passed. We've had those relationships where we're like, I don't know what's going to happen right here. The reason that pit is in your stomach, the reason that that moment happens is because there's an idea of some form of condemnation. There's something that can be present in that relationship. It's either they haven't let go of something in the past or, or you think they haven't let go of something in the past or maybe you haven't let go of something in the past, whatever it is, but you have this really sickening feeling. Here's the problem. When we do not believe what the Apostle Paul says to us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, every time we approach the throne of God, every time we run back to our Father, the problem is we have that same pit. We have that same anxiety in our stomach. And we go, I don't know if this is going to go really well. You know what God sees from the other side? He sees a child who is fretting or worrying over a non-issue. He sees a kid who doesn't understand how deeply he loves them. You see, it's not like your human relationships. It's not like that past relationship where you're so worried about what it looks like. God is wanting you to come to him. And when you understand that, you will boldly approach the throne of grace. 
When you understand that, you will run to Abba Father. When you understand that, you will also get in your mind, he is still God. So you don't run to him demanding things. You don't run to him, run to him pointing at him with your fingers and telling him what he should or should not do. That's, that's out of the question, right? As I, I've said many times, that is wrongheaded as well. You, you've, got, you've got something messed up in your brain. But to boldly approach the throne of grace is to know that there is nothing between you. The veil has been torn. There's no separation. Isn't that an amazing thing? Now, here, here's, what's, here's where I want to go today, and we're going to walk through each one of these verses. But uh, where I want to go today is I want, you to, I want you to have a deeper understanding as to why there is therefore now no condemnation. You know, the pastor gets up and he says, therefore there is now no condemnation. And you go, yeah, not feeling it. Right? Great words. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad even Paul said that. But I'm not feeling it. Sometimes we need the, the, the substance and the evidence of our faith presented to us on a regular basis so that we can believe the words that are written in God's word. Amen? Sometimes we need that. How many of you know what faith is defined as? Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Which means faith has substance and faith has evidence. God has never called you to what the world thinks uh, when, they, when they talk about faith. God has never called you to blind faith. Yes, the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But not seeing something is very different from being blind. It's very different. God has declared and reinforced truths inside of our lives, inside of our hearts and minds, that we are able to walk in boldly. And we walk in those boldly because there's substance and there's evidence. God does not say jump and the net will appear. God says, don't worry, the net's there, I assure you, here's why it's there, here's how it's there, now jump. He never expects you to jump blindly into anything. That's not who God is. We have, a, we have had a uh, very, very faulty definition of faith for a very, very long time. We've absorbed the culture's understandings of these things. I think it was Mark Twain who once said, uh, faith, is, uh, faith is actually defined as the thing you know doesn't exist, but you choose to believe it anyway. The thing you know doesn't exist, but you choose to believe it anyway. That's not faith. That's not faith. I don't even know what that is. But the church has bought into that nonsense. And so we go, well, listen, you just got to blindly follow, blindly trust. No, no, no. The word of God has declared why we don't blindly trust anything. God has spoken to us. God has proved it through evidence. God has shown us experiences, given us experience. He's done all that. Those will all be confirmed with his word or you need to take it back to the drawing board. But God has confirmed these things over and over. And it's really important for us to understand that. So faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And today, what I hope you'll see is that when Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation, he doesn't say that without providing you with substance and evidence. He doesn't just make this audacious claim and then have you keep living as though uh, God doesn't condemn you, only to be surprised when you meet him on judgment day. 
It's, that's not the way this works. Paul has established something. The first evidence for this is actually how chapter 8, verse 1 begins. And if you have your Bibles open, I want you to underline it. The first word is therefore. The first word is therefore. That's how Paul begins this. Now that word therefore is an interesting word because it, it often means if this is the case, then this will be the case. It means since this is true, what follows, follows. Since a truth is there, since an evidence or a, a fact or a truth or something that you can hold on to is there, then you can move forward. Now, oftentimes when you see the word therefore, it, it uh, causes us to look in the rearview mirror because what will happen with many writers is they'll establish a case and then they'll say, therefore, in light of all that I've just said, therefore, this is true. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul doesn't do it. Paul actually says, therefore, and then what follows verse 1 are all of his because statements. Those are all of his substances and evidences for this absolute fact that he has declared that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me prove to you that it's not looking in the rearview mirror first. Uh, the way chapter 7 ends is this. It says, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, there's no condemnation. That doesn't make any sense right? Uh, with my mind, I serve God. With my flesh, I serve sin. And there's no condemnation. It should have said, with my mind, I serve God. With my flesh, I serve sin. And I'm living in condemnation all day long. That's what it should have said. But Paul wasn't making that point at the end of seven. He was establishing a new point at the beginning of eight, and he follows it starting at verse two. So walk with me with, uh, through this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse two, four. Four, because, and what he lists here are a series of fours, a series of becauses that show you the substance and the evidence of this claim that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is the first one? Well, here's what he says. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. The first one is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we've been set free from the very letter that brought condemnation. You have been set free from the letter that brought you condemnation. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to do a lot of page turning today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Having, having this, while you're turning, having this rooted in your heart and your mind, having passages of Scripture that you can go to to, to justify this, this belief gives you substance and evidence for this claim that the Apostle Paul makes. He never makes a claim that he doesn't back up. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4-9. through 9. Here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Remember this, this is why we still sing songs like, he saved a wretch like me. Paul declares it right there. He says, he says we're not claiming that we're adequate in ourselves. 
So I, I hope you know that. I hope you understand that. I hope you don't feel that that is some sort of hidden or slighted condemnation still inside of your life. It's just an admonition of what is true. You look at this and you say, whoa, I'm not good in of myself. I'm not good in myself. So Paul says, such confidence we have through Christ Jesus toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from who? God. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. Now look at what he defines as the letter. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, we clearly understand this to be the law, definite article. We've got Mosaic law, we've got the sacrificial law, we've got all of this stuff. In letters engraved on stones, if that ministry of death came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? I love that because just as people couldn't look on Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai, we should understand that the glory that is revealed in the law of the Spirit of life is absolutely awe-inspiring. It should stop us in our tracks for how good it is. And we'll, we'll see what that looks like uh, in a little bit. It says, So that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of, of, his, of his face, though it was fading. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For the ministry of condemnation has glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had, glory, uh, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Whatever you saw on Moses' face ain't nothing. As a matter of fact, it's so dim in comparison, you don't even notice it. You don't even notice it. The reason why we have no condemnation as, as followers of Christ, the first substance, the first evidence that Paul presents is that the very law that brought condemnation, that very ministry of condemnation, we've been set free from. And we have been joined to the, the law of the spirit and life. And I'll explain that as we go. But there's a couple of things that we need to think about. Okay, so I'm not joined to that law anymore. Does that mean that I, can, uh, that I can abandon the morality of God? Does that mean that I can be, as scholars would say, can I be antinomian, anti-law? Can I just uh, throw this stuff out? No, and here's why. Because when you study the New Testament, when you study the words of Jesus, you will realize that he re-ups every one of these moral codes in the New Testament. It's powerful. He doesn't just re-up them. He shows us how, uh, where, where our evil comes from, where our brokenness comes from. It comes from the heart. And he says, not only are you not to murder your brother, but you're not even to hate them in your heart. <laughs> Thou shalt not murder. Not only are you not supposed to commit adultery, you're not even supposed to lust after a woman in your heart with your eyes. Wow, this is amazing. And Jesus just goes on and on and on with these things. You see, the, what is so amazing about the glory of this new covenant, what is so amazing about the law of the Spirit in life, is number one, God made us righteous. 
Number two, he has empowered us to live in accordance with what he has commanded. And all of that is motivated from our hearts. Why? Because he changed that too. This is amazing. This is glorious. Moses comes down from the mountain after receiving the law of God, face shining. And what does he find? He finds a bunch of people worshiping a golden cow. Aaron's words in this story just crack me up, right? Aaron's words in this story. He comes down and he goes, what, this is my paraphrase, this is Moses, what in the heck has happened, right? And, and Aaron goes, they gave me all their gold jewelry, I threw it in the fire and out popped a cow, right? Sure, sure that's what happened. You know why out popped a cow? Because the wickedness of Aaron's heart, the wickedness of man's heart produces something to honor and to worship. It produces idols to glory in. But God has done something new in the law of the spirit of life. And he has done something amazing. He's changed the very hearts of men. And he has called us to something beautiful. And he's, he's, he's put his spirit inside of us so that we can walk in accordance with him. Isn't that an amazing truth? It's absolutely amazing. So there is no condemnation because we've been set free from the very letter which brought about our condemnation. You don't have to turn here. But 1 Corinthians 15.45 says that the last man, Adam, became, that's referring to Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. You see, Jesus became a life-giving spirit and he gave life to us through his spirit. This is why this, spirit, uh, this law of the spirit in life gives us such joy, gives us such peace, because we've been empowered to something more. Listen, these are not just Paul's words. He doesn't just say, hey, trust me, there's no condemnation before God. He doesn't say that. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let me give you reasons why. Because the law that was a ministry of condemnation is removed. And you now belong to the law of spirit and life. This is an amazing truth, right? It appears that when we look to verse 11 in Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life means that the spirit of God dwells in us and has set us free. Set us free from sin and death. Sin and death cannot reside where God's spirit of life reigns. And last I checked, that life-giving spirit reigns in our hearts, right? This is why Peter tells us that we should sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Why? He's the life-giving spirit. He's the one who calls us to greater things. This is confirmed in passages like John 8, 32. And you'll, you'll know that, uh, here's what, Here's what Jesus says. I'm not even sure right now. But it says, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Yeah, Jesus. And verse 36, which says, so if the son makes you free, you are free indeed. Now here's the law. Here's the law. The legal requirement has been fulfilled. Now check this law out. If Jesus says you're free, you're free. I don't think you caught it. If Jesus says you're free, you're free. Who is Jesus? He's the word of God, right? If the word of God can create the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence, then Jesus can say you're free, and guess what? You're free. We question him a lot, but he has said you're free. And so here's the, here's the new law that we live by, the, the, new, uh, the new command that we live by. Jesus says you're free. I'm free, done. That's an amazing, amazing truth. 
Paul confirms that all of this is by grace in chapter 6, verse 14 of Romans, when he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Chapter 6, verse 18, having been freed from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. This is the new call of our life and the ability of the Christian life. And finally, Romans chapter 7, verse 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. Who is that other? Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our groom. We are joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Here's the substance and evidence. You've been set free from the letter or the ministry that brought condemnation. Part number two. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because not that God overlooked your sin or turned a blind eye to your life, but the righteous requirements, the debt that you owed, was perfectly paid in Jesus Christ. That's the second reason. Acts chapter 13, 39 says, Through him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. Could you set yourself free, church? Even through God's word? Even through God's law? That's why Paul says, the law, weakened as it was through the flesh. Our flesh is a heinous thing. And it simply brought about condemnation for us. It simply uh, walks in sin. It simply pushes us towards rebelling against God. And when God tells us what we should do, we go, ooh, I can do the opposite? Yay! And we try to run. We try to do that. But God says, no, 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 no. So again, what the law could not do, God did. So read with me Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Will you say that with me, church? God did. One more time. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us. That's amazing. It doesn't say so the righteous requirement of the law could be fulfilled in him. That was done before he came. But what is true is through him, it was also fulfilled in us so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I absolutely love this truth. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's right after Titus. In case you needed the address. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, here again, are the words of God. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. The first thing that you have to observe from Hebrews 10, 1 through 3, is that the law also included the sacrificial system there. It also says that those, sin, those sacrifices could not make us free of sin. They could not uh, make us perfect. But more important than all of that is that those sacrifices could not make us perfect. Why? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because they could not erase the consciousness of sin. They could not eradicate that guilt that we have. Okay? This is what is true about those who walk in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and God has made it so he is cleansing or has cleansed and is washing your conscience clean. We go on down to verse 22 of Hebrews 10, and it says this, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The whole way the writer of Hebrews contrasts what the law could not do with what God did do through his son. The law and the sacrifices of the law could never make us perfect because they could never erase the consciousness of sin that was in us. But God's spirit does. And when we approach the throne of grace boldly through faith, what is happening is we are walking in boldness in a free conscience, in a free and clear conscience, believing what Jesus said is true is true. That's what we're doing all the days of our life. It's just an amazing thing. Matthew chapter 5, 17 says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills them, and then he calls us to something by giving us his spirit that is far greater in its form of glory. I love this truth. So what the law could not do, weak as it was through my flesh, God did inside of his son. He has set us free. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Why? Because my debt was paid, the requirements were met. Now, for the geeks in the room, I'm hoping to create a church full of geeks at some point, but for the geeks in the room, it's really important, you hear it all the time from people, that God overlooked your sins, that God's turned a blind eye. We catch ourselves saying these things all the time. But God has not overlooked your sin. He has not uh, t you know, turned a blind eye. There is a passage of scripture that said, for a time God looked the other way. That was so that he could bring about fulfillment in Christ Jesus at a specific point in human history. But what what you need to understand is that God doesn't just say, ah, no big deal, let's just start again. If he could do that, listen to the logic, if he could do that, if that's the way he wanted to be, why does Jesus have to die? Do you understand the logic here? There's no need for Jesus to go to a cross if God can just say, I'll just wipe it off the slate, right? I'll just wipe it clean. It's not that big of a deal. No, Jesus dies for a very important reason, and that is because the justice of God must be satisfied. Write these verses down. They're on your program, but you can write them down for, for further study. God doesn't merely turn a blind eye. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the righteous, both are detestable to the Lord. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the righteous are both detestable to the Lord. Has God changed, church? 
No, he has not changed, which means what was true of him then is true of him now. It is still detestable to the God of the universe to acquit the acquit the guilty, and condemn the righteous. God hasn't done that. So what does he do? Because it sure looks like that, that's what he did, didn't it? It sure looks like we were the guilty, and we were condemned, and Jesus was the righteous, and God just violated his own word. But he didn't. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to die on our behalf. No. To be sin. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God. Make no mistake, God did not acquit the guilty and condemn the righteous. God condemned the guilty because he put all of our sin on Jesus who became sin on our behalf. So that we might be acquitted as innocent. So that we might become the righteousness of God. If you don't understand the depth of what took place on the cross, you need to spend some time studying it because it will humble you all the days of your life. It will cause you to weep. It will cause you to jump for joy. It will cause you to go into all the world and declare what has been done for you because you and I were guilty. God must be satisfied. He did not turn a blind eye. Instead, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. It is staggering what God was willing to do for our sake. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul starts it by saying, for our sake. Not for his glory, although that's amazing, and that happens. He declares, for our sake. You know why? Because there's no other way we're made righteous. There's no other way we're made righteous except for him to do what he graciously does for us. By his own will and through his own counsel, sin was condemned in Christ Jesus' flesh on the cross and justice has therefore been accomplished. So, number one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because you and I have been set free from the very letter that brings condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not because God overlooked our sins, but because my debt was paid and, my, and the requirements were fully met in Christ Jesus. And last but not least, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The substance and evidence behind Paul's claim is because we've been made pleasing to God. We've been made pleasing to God. Show of hands, how many of you were getting close to being pleasing to God on your own behalf? <laughs> right? Let's keep it that way, church. You know, Jesus came uh, to correct and to uh, call two really important groups of people out on the carpet. The sinner who didn't know him, didn't know him at all, and the self-righteous Pharisee who thought he knew everything. Jesus has a lot of harsh words to say to self-righteous people. So the idea that we could ever make ourselves clean, like the idea that we were ever good enough, that, that you know, God thought of us as uh, smart enough and, and uh, likable enough that he came to save us. No, 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 no. He came to save us because he is love. 
He came to save us because he chose to love us. It is unbelievable. There's no condemnation because we have been made right in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. This is how we know we're in right standing. Let's start at verse 6 and go to the end of 17 in Romans 8. For the mind of the set... mind. Set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God, because without faith it is impossible to please God. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, because he made you righteous. Verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if, you have, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Trust me, church, you can't graft yourself into his tree. He either makes you a son or it doesn't happen. And graciously, he is called to make us sons through his gospel. It's amazing, right? For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We have no condemnation because he has made us pleasing to him. He has made us pleasing to him by giving us his spirit. And by giving us his spirit, he has made us children. Do you know that you get to cry out, Abba, Father? Did you know that the Spirit testifies with your spirit to cry out, Abba, Father? Do you know that that's the case? It's amazing. So Paul tells us in this bold assertion in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation. And he says, but hold on a second. I know that we're a people who live by faith. And I also know that faith has substance and faith has evidence. So here is the substance and here is the evidence of this audacious claim that I have made. There is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus because one, the letter that brought condemnation has been moved out of the way. Number two, because your debt has been paid, the requirements have been met. And number three, because God made you pleasing to him. God has changed the game, church. So when you uh, assert that you have no condemnation in Christ Jesus, there's many reasons for it. There's many reasons for it. And Paul has listed them. Why? So that your faith is not blind. So that your faith is not wishful thinking. So that your faith is not grasping at nothing in the darkness. You have something firm to hold on to. 
The law has been moved out of the way in, in the respect of its condemnation. The, the, the Jesus who we serve has, has made us right before him. He's paid our debts. And God said, I've made you pleasing to me. Come, come, come. Last week, I got a note from somebody who, who had shared um, a little bit about having a bad, uh, a bad experience as they were growing up. Um, not, a, not a good father, not a good experience as they were growing up, and it was really rough. And uh, pe- preachers say this kind of thing all the time. They say, you know, um, our human relationships can uh, impact our heavenly relationship. They, ca- they, can, um, they can cause us to have a, a, a bad view of God. And so this particular note was that this person had a bad childhood, a bad upbringing, a bad father, and it's really hard to see God as a good father. Is there anybody else in this room that would say, yeah, I've had that experience. I had a bad father. Don't tell my dad I raised my hand. No, I'm not. But could you, could you say that? I'm in, and with boldness, just kind of raise your hand and say, yeah, that was me. I, I want you to understand that that's, you're not alone in this, okay? But here's what, I want you, here's what I want you to rest assured in. What I want you to rest assured in is your earthly father will never, no matter how good a father could be, will never be a good reflection of the heavenly father. Not a perfect reflection of the heavenly father, Okay? So I want you to understand something. I want you to. I want you to put. Uh, I want you to take what your dad has done to you. I want to take. I want you to take all of that pain from your past, and I want you to put that aside. And I want you to trust in a father that's greater than your earthly father. I want you to trust in a father that loves you more than anybody else could. And I want you to trust not only in that father, but I want you to trust in his words. I want you to trust in the words of that father that said, "I don't condemn you in my son." I don't condemn you in my son. Come to me. Come to me. That will give you peace that you cannot express, right? That'll give you a peace, as the Bible says, that passes all understanding. It's an amazing truth, isn't it? So no matter what your past was, no matter what your, what your history holds, God is greater than all those things, amen? There's a reason why we believe Paul's audacious claims, because Paul's given us facts to back it up. He's given us substance and he's given us evidence. Aren't those amazing truths? So walk today not just knowing that you're free, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Walk free today knowing why that's the case. Jesus. Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.